yesterday we went a bit deep in exploring this idea of internal moral sense of what's right and wrong in the world. And that our seichel is not only a incredibly sophisticated computer that can imperatively observe and then derive principles of behavior, which is one function of the seichel, but that seichel is, is clean of content. Meaning the one function of the seichel is to look at the natural world and to understand from the way that things work what the Bayo wants from me in this given moment. That's one role that the Seichel plays. A second role that the Seichel plays is not only to provide me with a, a mechanism, almost a, a computer that can, that can derive laws by witnessing experience and bringing empirical evidence why things should work the way they do. The Seichel is also a source of internal guidance and wisdom that gives me a direction in my life as to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is appropriate, what is inappropriate. And simply by becoming aware and connected to my Seichel itself, I develop these spiritual traits, which are the, um, the gift that humanity has been given by Hashem. And yesterday we found footprints in some secular writings as to the fact that there's something specific to humans. And the two things that one of the books we learned were mentioned specifically were compassion and self-restraint, which we said have a jarring similarity to the two bundle components of what we call the neshama of chesed and gvura, or av of the hero. Av being the ability to connect and to feel and to, for example, in Aramaic, av is called rachme. Rachme is compassion. So, gvura is self-mastery and the power to, to, to restrain oneself. So it's, it's really interesting that those two things which are defined as fundamental human traits are also the basic structure of the, of the neshama. And now we go a bit deeper because we don't want to really just leave this idea as a, what I don't want to do is that we want to, want to be involved in Musa, not in philosophy. Um, you know, so, so when you speak about Musa, the idea of Musa is the integrated idea, not the theoretical idea. So what, is, what do these things mean to me? Obviously, what they, the impact that they have on me as a person is a whole different view of myself. And when I look at myself, I recognize that the essence of my being, before I even speak about the elevated status of 
been blessed with the gift of Torah is the essence of who I am is this, this component, this, this really deep, kind, and controlled being. And when I look at myself in that, what, those ways, so then it gives me a, a different view of life. And I'm wondering how, if we, like, what would be if we like walked into a, I don't know, an office building and we started speaking to people. We say, okay, tell me like, what is it that makes you you? Like, what, what, what kind of person are you? I'm wondering how many people would respond by saying, well, I'm compassionate and have the power of self-restraint. I think we don't view ourselves in those terms. And I don't think we even recognize that that could be the, um, let me, let me, let me, okay, I know this is not smoothly flowing from one point to another, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about emotional wounds and let's think about how those, how those emotional wounds occur. Um, emotion, emotional wounds come about emotional wounds come about when a person, let's say, is um, not shown love. There's a lot of literature that says children who, who aren't even abused in their childhood, but they are simply neglected. They're not, they're not warmly embraced. They're not connected to. They, are, they have a sense of um, kind of a, vac- a vacuum in their lives. They feel like they're never really filled. And there's all this kind of stuff that goes on. Now, if it would be that humanity would be a um, group of creatures who weren't built to connect with love and compassion, well, then one would reason that not having love and compassion wouldn't negatively affect them. So I think even from the way that our emotional structure is built and what we consider to be a wound, gives way to almost from seeing what hurts us, we can see what heals us. And by seeing what heals us, we can see what the optimum level of humanity should look like. So people get very offended when they're spoken badly, when they're not given respect, when they're not given love, when they're not given connection. And they also behave very badly when there's no boundaries. When there's no boundaries and there's no um, limitations. So then people generally also get kind of, um, you know, you can have two parents. One parent will smother their child with love and give them everything they have. And then the child grows up feeling that there's a sense of disorientation because they never knew where their place was. And then you have another parent that deprives his child of love and doesn't relate to his child. And the child grows up with a sense of, of worthlessness because he was never responded to. So in order for us to function optimally as human beings and for us to be happy and fulfilled, we need to seemingly, seemingly sync with our inner compassion and our inner self-restraint. And when we, when we out of sync with those two components, so not only do we get affected, but we affect other people in a very negative sense. So this all allows us to comprehend of humanity as in its perfect form, 
totally connected to these higher parts of ourselves. And in its imperfect form, um, we experience a dislocation from these, from these, from these traits. Now, there have been many societies and there are many people who do suffer that dislocation. And Rabbi Brahm explores it briefly when he asks the following question, that one of the components of Seichel is that it can be influenced or distorted. Not that the actual Seichel itself can be distorted, but that um, that that the thinking process can be influenced by emotional biases to the degree that judges are forbidden to take bribes because there's a there's a there's a, there's a basic principle that the minute that you have um, a sense of attachment to a particular side of an argument. So it will be very difficult to see it from an objective basis. And it's even a tiny little bribe. I think it was, it was with Shmuel, Brebiosi, that his worker gave him his, the worker worked for him and they split the profits. He gave him his profits, his share, which belonged to him a day early. And um, he came the next day to be judged in court. And Shmuel said, I can't judge you because I'm biased because you did me a favor. And um, he second-guessed himself, thinking that maybe it's being a little bit too extreme. And he went to listen to the case. And he noticed, because he was self-aware, that he was already thinking of claims for his, his worker to defend him in court. And then he thought, okay, now I know I was right for not judging the case. So if something as subtle as a small favor can create a bias in a mind as great as the, one of the Tanoi Makadoshim, so it's scary to think how biases, which are far more enticing, can create a distortion in the minds of we, the wall hyssops, or in Hebrew, the Ezoive Akir. Um, and therefore, you know, granted, we've got this thing called Seichel, but how in the world are we, are we meant to access it in its pristine state? since we're always going to be flooded with our other internal agendas, which will distort that process. And this is really a question that Belchanan asks, Belchanan Vassiman. Um, he says, how is it possible that philosophers were literally spent, you know, seas of ink discussing the fundamental questions of life and the existence of God or not the existence of God, and he says there's a basic requirement of every human being, because even the Bnei as we spoke about yesterday, are obligated in the belief of God. How can you expect that from, a, from, from everyone in the world who has never been taught that information? How can you expect a child of 13 to, to keep a mitzvah when they don't have the philosophical kalim to grasp it? So he answers with this, with this direction. He says, well, the fact that there's a shame in the world is blindingly obvious. It's the most obvious thing in the world. The only reason we can't see it is because it's also very emotionally expensive to acknowledge. Uh, there's implications and consequences to acknowledging it. It means that I can't live life the way I want to live life. It means that I can't do
do what I want to do. It limits my um, fulfillment of my own selfish, sometimes very hedonistic desires. And therefore, there's a bribe. And the bribe stacked in the case of is there God, isn't there God, makes me want to believe under all circumstances that there's no God because believing it is way too inconvenient for the kind of life they want to live. The last thing I need in my life is an authority that rules over me and sees what I do and is going to evaluate them. I don't want their responsibility. I'd much rather be in my own mind. I'd much rather create a reality where I can do whatever I like and there's no consequences. Shabbat explains that that underlies the whole philosophical movement that has to explore the nature of, of God, where, where it should be blindingly obvious. We wake up in the morning, so it should be very natural to say, okay, well, this is just like such an incredibly sophisticated world, like Avram Avinu did. If there's, a, if, there's a, if there's a world, there's a creator, if there's precision to such microscopic detail in every element of the superbly timed ecosystem, the world that we live in, so then isn't it obvious? Now, what you may argue, and this is, I think, really fascinating, you may argue, but you know, evolution has kind of been almost proven, and therefore, there's no real compelling reason to believe in God. Um, I would say, actually, the fact that evolution is a topic of conversation is in itself something that we need to reflect on. Why would people be so obsessed with the origin of man? We yeah, let's just get on with it. It's almost as if one of the things that a human being will ask, because we're programmed to do so, because we've been given this gift of Nishama, and one of the things we need to ask is, what am I doing in this world, and what is my purpose? So that's, that same power that asks that question is going to drive me to ask about the origin of man. And when that question, I would suggest, is a bias to it, that coming up with the answer that, well, there was a creation and there's an expectation is a much harder answer to deal with than there was no creation, everything's random, because it gives me a lot more freedom to do what I, do what I like in life. But the funny thing is that there should really have been no need to ask the question, theoretically speaking, because it shouldn't have been part of our mental apparatus to question the why of our life. We shouldn't be asking why am I existing and what is my purpose and what am I here for? And therefore the origin of man shouldn't have even been a topic of discussion. But from the fact that it is a topic of discussion almost underscores the nature of who we are as people. We are people that are seeking to make meaningful decisions and directions in our life. And now I refer back to Viktor Frankl because Viktor Frankl wasn't a religious man, and he wasn't a, he was, he was a Jew, but he wasn't observant in any way. And his whole theory of, of um, psychology, which is called logotherapy, is based on one underlying principle, which is in order for a person to survive, meaning is of crucial, crucial importance, meaning that without meaning, person person will, in some situations, literally die. And his observations are based on his experiences in the Holocaust and looking at who died and who survived. And he came to the conclusion that people that had something to live for beyond themselves would be the ones who lived, and people that didn't would die. So he looked upon meaning as a fundamental 
a fundamental component of human existence, if not the most fundamental component of human existence. So, so all these things are just like these little like impressions, which, which give way to this deep, kind, compassionate, controlled being that lives beneath the surface of humanity, but so often is hijacked, hijacked by biases which silence that voice which needs to be heard so deeply. And reflecting on what we said yesterday, Hitler's word on that the Jews have inflicted a wound by creating a conscience. Conscience is one of the ways that we, the word we use to describe this deeper sense of when I've done something which doesn't, is not coherent with my inner self. So there's something inside me which says, no, 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 this isn't working. And I, I, I think, you know, I think there's, 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 there's technical terms for this, but in terms of mental disease, I think one of, the, one of the ways of defining what's called a sociopath is a person who has no conscience, meaning he'll be able to do anything and feel no sense of remorse after doing so. And that's looked upon as a mental degeneration, someone that's, that's not functioning. So conscience is, is a sign of mental health. So what I'm trying to bring out in, in, from multiple angles is that we have been given a gift and Perhaps we, since we have had that gift since birth, we don't really appreciate it. We don't articulate it. And we don't differentiate between the essence and the consequences. We don't respond to the gift as our, as our, entity, as our essential entity. And we don't listen carefully for his voice to give me directives of how to live my life. And that's why I think this is a, a fascinating point. Um, the Tosafrav goes on and he brings, again, many, many rayas, proofs from the Naveen of how the king of Ashur was, was taken to task because he, he showed the trait of arrogance. Not because he did something illegal or wrong, but he was arrogant. The Amos speaks about um, Damascus that even though they're involved in war, they killed their victims in a cruel fashion. And they were taken to task for the cruelty that they used. That there wasn't appropriate, even though, of course, in war, so there's a legitimacy to defense and to, 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 to bloodshed. But to do it in a cruel manner, there's no legitimacy. Um, he goes on a series of, of different proofs. And um, that's how he comes to this conclusion. But then he asks the question, and I'd like to like explore with you the answers. Is he asks this question, but you know, our seichel is prone to, to mistakes. So he gives two answers, and I'd like to examine these answers. The first answer he gives as to how we avoid the mistakes is when you're only thinking about yourself, what is good and what is bad, so then you become distorted. You always have to think about it in global terms into areas where it's not relevant to you. Think about it as a human issue. And once you've decided what's the correct approach, approach for humanity, then you can conclude that there is a correct approach for you. That's one thing he says. 
Second thing he says, that you alone are not the judge and jury. The world are judges. And when there's a global consent that this is a way to go, that gives us direction. Occasionally, he says, you get a great leader who his wisdom can also provide guidance. And then he contrasts us with this, one of the most relevant events in the Chumash is the interaction between Avimelech and Avram. Avimelech had a, uh, he was a king of a, a very just and humane society. And Avram Avinu comes to visit. And Avram Avinu comes to visit Avimelech and Avimelech sees Sarah and um, well, the people, his people see Sarah and they say, who is this woman? Is she your sister? Is she your wife? And he says, she's my sister. So Avimelech takes her to his palace. They take her to Avimelech's palace and he wants to marry her or at least cohabit with her. And he has this dream. And Hashem comes to him in the dream and says, you know, how can you seize the woman of a, of a married woman? And he wakes, you know, and he, he came back to Hashem, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a righteous person. Why are you kidding, him? kidding me? And the next day, Avimelech questions Avram Avinu. And he says to Avram Avinu, what do you do to me? Why did you tell me she was your, why did you tell me she was your sister? Sorry, why did you tell me she was your wife? So, I remember when he replies back in the Pasuk that I saw a rak and Hashem I saw there was no Yeres Hashem. There was no God consciousness in this place. I mean, it was a completely moral place. But there was no sense of a higher authority. So the laws of morality were humanly designed. They weren't acknowledged to come from a, from a higher source. Um, and and the way the Gemara expresses it is that when Abraham Avinu arrived, they said, is she your wife or is she your sister? And Abraham Avinu said, what kind of question is that? When the person comes to the city, so you're concerned for his welfare. Why are you asking if it's my wife or my sister? The fact that you asked that question demonstrated that you had lewd intent and therefore I lost complete, complete faith in your seemingly just society. Um, so that, that's, that's quite astonishing that um, just for asking the question in that way, all of a sudden Abraham Vinu fears for the life of himself because he says, perhaps if we would have said that Sarah, Sarah was his wife, they would kill him and take her. But this is a just society. Why would they do that? The answer is that when there's no real connection to acknowledging the godliness, even if it's in self. So then the bias can distort us on every side. But I, I mean, look, I think there's a lot of questions that have been raised, and there's some good questions in the chat which we're going to have to explore. Um, if I'm limited in my mental capacity in deciding what's good for all of humanity, how could I consider enough to have a worthwhile opinion? What about if the global consensus is wrong? So I think these are great questions and we have to explore them further. So I think this is like really, this is our issue.
this is of how we see ourselves and how we see the world. But for the moment, I think we've done a good job. So I'm going to say goodbye to you now. And I look forward to taking up again tomorrow with joy and the delight. Ciao, ciao.